Hi everybody, hello and welcome to the Fire Science Show, session 16, a nice round number <laughs> to the power of four. Nice to have you here. Today we're going to discuss evacuation modeling, a part of fire science engineer's life that's always there. If you're doing any type of analysis, you're usually relating them to the human safety and the human safety factor is usually evaluated by the means of modeling the evacuation degress phenomenon. And today I have two guests, both of them are renowned experts in modeling evacuation and researching the various aspects of how people escape buildings, the decision processes, the choices they make, um, and the factors that influence the, the, the whole process. Both are Italians for some reason. <laughs> I don't know if it's... Uh, it's a thing, but it seems Italians are powerful in this field of fire science. Um, they're both connected. One was a supervisor, one was a student. Now they're both professors. They're both our young stars of fire engineering. So yeah, please join me in welcoming Professor Enrico Ronchi from Lund University and Professor Ruggiero Lovreglio, also known as Reno from Massey University in New Zealand. The idea for this episode came to me when I was preparing a presentation for Polish experts on the current state and the future of evacuation modeling. Back then, I sent an email to, to Reno and Enrico to ask them what do they feel about the future of evacuation modeling. And I've received some really cool and vibrant answers and I immediately asked them to maybe share them with you in here. And here we are discussing all these things from simulations in buildings to virtual reality and augmented reality, data gathering, and other concepts of evacuation modeling up to wildfire evacuation. So it's jam-packed with action. I hope you really enjoyed this one. So yeah, without further ado, let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wigzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Fire Science Show. I'm today with not one, but two fantastic experts on evacuation modeling. With me today, Professor Enrico Ronki from Lund University in Sweden. Hi, Enrico. Hi. Hi, Wojciech. Nice to see you and hear you. <laughs> Great to see you as well. And from the almost exactly opposite side of the globe, Professor Ruggiero Vreglio from Massey University in New Zealand. Good evening, Rino. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. And thank you for inviting me. Thanks for taking the invite, guys, and I really appreciate that. I've invited you because I wanted to discuss with someone the future of evacuation modeling and how it's being used and how it can be used in the future for, for better. And I was thinking about an expert and I figured out I know two experts and they're both Italian, they're both nice, so should work out. <laughs> Here you are. If, if it doesn't work, I'll send you both a pineapple pizza. Oi! Ouch! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so before we, we catch up for the podcast, I asked you about some ideas about the, the future of evacuation modeling. But let's start with how modeling is done today. 
And I just want to ask you this cheesy question. What do you think is the role of evacuation modeling in current fire safety engineering for you? Enrico, maybe you can start. I see evacuation modeling as a useful tool within performance-based design in terms of Yeah, we use it to calculate RSET, but not only nowadays, because it also gives us the opportunity to identify uh, critical bottlenecks in buildings. So even to spot if there are some potential issues in a given design. And also the part that is very powerful is the one that relates to the fact that we can simulate several what-if scenarios. This put us in a great position, especially when we want to consider scenarios indeed like fires, in which we don't really often know exactly what what will happen, but we can guess a set of reasonable set of scenarios about what could happen. I see it as a very powerful and uh, useful tool. But there is a but. There is always <laughs> a room for improvement. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, we will all, uh, let's say, be happy and never improve if we don't think about this in this way. But at the moment, I will say it's still uh, a useful tool for performance-based design and not only. So also mm. to have a, a rough idea on how building works in terms of design when you put people in it and you put mm. different behavioral scenarios in it. Arena, yeah, you? I want to add that, that but it's also good for people that work in the industry because they are not automated models that you just tell him, this is the building, do the work for me. So we still need brains and engineers capable to understand what are the parameters to put inside those models to try to mimic as much as we can reality. And that's why most of the course that you will find around the world, they don't teach you just how to click the buttons. And that's the things that probably we say all to all our students, that probably your cousin that is a geek in the computers will be much more capable to use any software that is around the world, but you are going to get paid in the future because you are capable to understand what's the theory of human behavior in fire and try to do your best in uh, integrating those theory and the right numbers as input of those models. Because the main issues is that at this stage, the, those models are heavily rely on the inputs that the user put on it. Yeah. So, so you're saying by understanding how to build the model, you understand the, the human aspect better and, and in general it gives you closer to a safer building. Like electric vehicle forces you to save uh, energy by driving more calmly in a way. That, that's a good one. For me, as someone, I, I'm not a um, researcher in this field. Or my research overlaps with, with evacuation sometimes, but it's not my, my principal area of research. But I'm using a lot of evacuation modeling in my engineering practice. And for us, sadly, it's an RSET calculator, usually. Well, in, in ITB, we would do this bottleneck uh, scan that, that Enrico mentioned. I, I think this is very powerful because in, in generally buildings work. If you build a building to a code and you have these evacuation paths that are required, at least by the Polish code, it usually leads to more or less uh, safe building. Not perfect, but not horrible either. But this, this bottlenecks can, can be very limiting for the evacuation process. When you have a, the complex geometry of the building, this is a perfect tool to scan for that. However, it takes some skill and, and knowledge and especially the constants of the behavior or speed, which we'll touch in, in a second, are very important to be defined. Arino, I know you also use a lot of this modeling or these approaches connected with virtual and augmented realities to study the behaviors. And I think it's something that opened up lately a lot. 
So uh, how does this interplay with, with the evacuation modeling? We must say that uh, most of the, the work done in virtual reality wasn't initiated by me. There are people that have done much more on this. Just to mention, Max Kinateder did mm-hmm. a full PhD student in integrating virtual reality. And uh, also Enrico and Daniel Nilsson did quite a lot of application of virtual reality. So I basically... They prepared the road for me. <laughs> I basically followed the path that was already defined by them. And as you can imagine, virtual reality gives you the possibility to build evacuation systems that don't exist or to test a new concept of evacuation system and try to see if they work. And uh, you can see, for instance, the, one of the most relevant paper on this is the, the paper written by Rico on the tunnel exit. If you think yeah. in the past, before having this kind of study, the poor Daniel Nielsen was supposed to <laughs> manufacture the system and bring people, stop a tunnel and bring people in a tunnel. You can imagine from a logistic point of view, it was a nightmare. Yes. But at that time, it was also a nightmare to have virtual reality back then because it was mm. incredibly expensive. It was like mm. something unbelievably expensive. And now it's becoming so cheap that it's becoming quite easy in labs to have it and use it for a testing evacuation system and also to push a bit the boundaries to study a bit social interaction. And for instance, Max Kinateder did a lot of good studies on social interaction. In my case, I'm, uh, I belong more from the, the path of, uh, I'm not a psychologist, I'm more uh, oriented by the transportation guys in which we try to put many variables and try to see how many factors can affect the, the behavior of people. And uh, virtual reality gave me the possibility to experiment what will be the, 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 the decision making of different evacuee, consider different combination of variables. And there was something uh, that it wasn't possible even for my PhD. In fact, in my PhD, I had to use non-immersive technology. But then now, since the price is dropping and buying VR headset, it became quite easy for everyone. Allowed me to do much more immersive study to, to go deeper and try to understand how different mm. combination of variables and factors can affect the decision making of people. And this is something awesome. Bottom level, you can buy a cardboard and put your smartphone in it and you have some sort of virtual reality, which is actually not that horrible. You were referring to the um, dissuasive exit uh, paper, if, I, if I'm correct, right? Uh, that's one of them. The one that I was referring was about, it's a paper on far technology on... Uh, flashing lights is the one on flashing lights. Yeah, uh, flashing lights, okay, yeah. And the good things that the follow-up of that paper led by Enrico, it was like to prove that the experiment done in a cave that he took, I think the cave is, is still incredibly expensive. And the yeah. same experiment done in, in a really cheap headset end up pretty much with the same results. So at okay. least for testing a fire safety system, you can even use pretty cheap devices that might cost you 1,000, 2,000 US dollar or even less. And still you can do really cool things. And Enrico probably can tell you more about that because he was leading. Yeah, I mean, the idea there was that for the fire safety engineering purposes, when it comes to studying a vacation system, we we originally did some studies in a cave that we have at Lund University. The cave is basically a full-scale room in which we have projectors and uh, we deploy VR there, having some sort of ultrasound system that track your movement in VR. Those are very expensive labs. And this is what was traditionally used 
used, let's say, <laughs> for more than 20 years to do VR experiments at the same type of lab that they have, for instance, at the University of Würzburg, the one that uh, Rino mentioned with Max Kinateder. But then what we did after doing this experiment to test how a certain type of evacuation system worked, we thought, okay, what will we get if we use a much cheaper VR solution? So if we use some sort of a headset and, and we went for the cheapest we could find on the market <laughs> pretty much because we went for a cardboard with a phone inside. And I mean, if we look at certain type of variables that do not get so much impact from the interaction with the environment, but it's more like a visual system that you are interacting with, we saw that results were pretty consistent. So it was very encouraging to see that basically you could get a reasonable understanding of what will happen in a fire evacuation scenario uh, using a very cheap virtual reality system. So that was uh, the idea. And, and again, we have to be careful in generalizing these things because it might be that there are uh, scenarios which require more interaction for which uh, there is an advantage in using mm -hmm. a more immersive systems. But in most of the uh, engineering problems that we have for fire evacuation design, we often have to decide between uh, uh, different evacuation systems or different design choices. So things like that affect the actual layout of the building or that affect the actual installations that we put in the building. So in those cases, often it is possible to have a quite decent grasp on how people will interact with those by uh, using fairly cheap VR. And, and again, this is something that uh, from being expensive and rich labs uh, at the university now, they are uh, consumer products that basically pretty much anyone can afford. Do you have to go uh, through ethics committee for these experiments or how does the path look? We have to go through ethics committees, mostly every country and every place in the world mm. and different rules. But in Sweden, we have a national committee that evaluates, uh, let's say, the risks and the possible issues, for instance, with the personal data protection and so on uh, of the experiments that we do. So when we deal with human subjects, basically, we have to go through uh, ethics. But at the end of the day, the type of experiments that we do, they are not too different from what is uh, a gaming experience. Actually, yes. I will say that it's much more mild. It's much milder <laughs> compared to certain <laughs> games that we have nowadays. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, you don't have to run over people or shoot at people like in certain games. So it's more like experiencing a fire scenario, an evacuation scenario. But again, we have procedures in place for making sure to minimize risks because, you know, there are still a, a portion of people that they may get dizzy when they use VR or they may feel nausea and so on. I've asked that because I know it's hell to get a fire experiment approved, like exposing people to real yeah. smoke in, in real smoky conditions. I, I once talked with Daniel Nielsen and he told me he has horrible issues getting an experiment like subway station approved because of, of his willingness to use the, the real people. And then these experiments with real people are also usually for some reason limited to, you know, a population of healthy students. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And while your VR set, when it's cheap and easy to deploy, it's also something that could be used to cross cultural boundaries. You could run the same experiment in multiple places of the world to expose different populations with different backgrounds. And, you know, in a way, our evacuation modeling, the fundamental diagrams, the pre-evacuation times are, let's say, like very white European population biased, yeah. right? Yeah. Because it's uh, it's been Lund, it's been Greenwich, uh, it's been generally European units that have been developing that. So, um, yeah, I wonder, what, what do you think is the future of these prescriptive approaches? Like the, the fundamental diagram, the speed versus density plots, the pre-evacuation distributions are the things that currently probably determine the output of evacuation modeling more than the physics of the model itself. 
or often in a comparable way, yeah? I got that we are trying to open here the can of worms because, <laughs> <laughs> because there are a lot of uh, standard curves that have been uh, using for years that have been generating yeah. for specific types of population and there is a lot of papers that we are bringing in the field and showing that those curves can be probably too conservative for some cases but in other cases won't be conservative at all so that means that we might get in trouble if we use we expect that those curves represent the real behavior the Mm -hmm. real trends of pedestrian dynamic and then they are not exactly that and the issues that we have now is that we try to find uh, If we don't use the standard curves, like for instance the SFP curves, we try to find curves that were collected in a, in a population that were as similar as possible as the population that we ex- we might expect in uh, in the building that we are designing. And this is still a issue because that means that we need to have incredible different variation of uh, those curves. An interesting work that was uh, initiated by Daniel Nielsen, uh, Karen Boyce, uh, Steve Winnie and Denise I remember her surname, sorry. McGrath, McGrath. <laughs> sorry, Denise. <laughs> It was like try to find really fundamental, fundamental diagrams. <laughs> so fundamental square diagrams in which you need just to define the physiometric characteristic of people and then the fundamental diagrams will show up as an input. And that's one of the things that I was telling you, like you can rely on defined inputs of models, like just because this is the standard curve, I need to use that one. At this stage, you need to even find the fundamental curves that represented are closer to to your case study and for instance if someone is trying to do the job now he might go on the chapter 64 i guess of the sfp <laughs> chapter that is on engineering data written by steve winnie and karen boyce and in that case there is a huge collection of different kind of speed and fundamental relationship that you can find extracted from different experimental condition or real cases yeah. there, there's also your paper from nist uh, that that covers a lot of specific yeah. scenarios uh, pre-evacuation, yeah. i try to do something to help people to identify the right you help me distribution. thank you <laughs> <laughs> but The, the problem is some, sometimes when you publish this kind of paper, you feel like I'm helping or I'm creating a bomb. Because mm. if those curves and distribution are misused, you're basically creating a damage for society instead of helping society. And that's the, the big risk. And that's why we put a lot of statement in the paper <laughs> that you're referring about data set, pre-evacuation, distribution, about be careful about how you select because it might not really represent what you're trying to to represent with your design and uh, to move away from this kind of approach with Enrico we try to write and study a lot of other alternative approach in which we actually try to model the decision making in terms mm. of pre-evacuation instead of relying only on curves because those can be the results of an agent-based modeling approach rather than a defined input. The problem is that now we use pre-evacuation as an input, but the dream will be that this will be the outcome of a model. So you just define the agent that it exists and it's in this place and whatever happens since you press play is uh, is the model, not your yeah. assumptions. Yeah. On the other way, the provocation is that this might make a fire engineer useless <laughs> at some point. But that, that's kind of a, a, an ideal world if we manage to develop models that are capable to predict things without smart users. At some point, we will get rid of fire engineers 
But I think this is uh, probably, we will see this in two, three generational. Well, I'm not sure if that would be a bad thing. I, I think you would not get rid of fire engineers because we are generating fire problems quicker than we can solve them. So there's always a job for fire engineers. Our job is very secure in that manner. And on the other hand, there is always not enough fire engineers around. I hope always I won't not. receive any call because sometimes I tease my student, construction students say that AI is going to take over replace. and replace. <laughs> and sometimes after... After the classes, there is some student that approached me and said, you know, I'm really wasting my money because my parents are spending so much money in my degree. And then I make sure that they understand that it was basically a joke. What's your what's your take on, on fundamental diagrams? I, I I mean it's you know it's controversial in itself even the word fundamental for fundamental diagrams because uh, yeah are, are, sorry are they fundamental because of physics or are they fundamental because we have to use them right? I, I, that's that's kind of the feeling sometimes <laughs> that we don't have anything better at the moment yeah. so we have to go on with them. But there is also some aspects that I want to bring up that is a bit yeah. linked to what Rina was mentioning before that we are designing buildings mm-hmm. today that will be used for several years from now. Decades. Uh, Yeah. So this means that we cannot really rely necessarily on design that is based on the population of today or or even worse, population uh, data that has been collected many years ago because the population demographics will change. We know that we're getting older and the prevalence of disabilities in the population is increasing. Mm. So we need to find ways to change this paradigm, find a way to design buildings projecting what will be the population in those buildings, not just looking at what it is today, or even worse, relying exclusively on what data we have from the past. Sometimes we use data that they've been collecting the 70s, 80s, and so mm. on. So we, we really need to change a bit that kind of a mindset that, okay, it's it's good enough to design something with what we have so far. We have to try to push the boundaries, especially as researchers, we have to try to see how we can solve this problem. One thing in this aspect that I want to bring up is also regarding the, uh, let's say, variability of possible population that you can mm-hmm. uh, can have in a building. To me, uh, recently I've been involved in quite some work looking, for instance, at different type of disabilities and or what type of functional limitations people may have in a building. And I would say in, in fire safety, we are very much behind compared to other fields like accessibility mm-hmm. or even looking at the medical science. So, you know, often you, you read the fire code and you read something like, okay, you should take appropriate provisions for people with disabilities. But, you know, there is so many possible disabilities, so many possible situations and scenarios uh, that we should have to take into consideration. So one important step that research should do is to try to categorize in a much more systematic way that the populations that we have uh, based on the functional limitations that people can have. So what are their characteristics? What are possible limitations that can affect egress and so on? So that's uh, an important step, especially if we look at the future, because we know that we are getting uh, older and older on average as population, mm. which means that uh, also we're, we're getting more and more people that have more issues during evacuation. So I think this is an important topic that paradoxically has not been so much investigated. To me, I mean, I see as one of those things that we should really put a lot of emphasis in research because it's going to be more and more important in the future. This is also something I've been, I am asked about in, let's say, one out of three buildings that I do, that how did you account for disabled people in your evacuation modeling? And I usually say I've hidden them in my safety margin, you know, 
because I, I don't really feel I have a powerful way to account for them today. I could technically assume a small portion of the population in my model is disabled and has completely different, let's say, movement or pre-decision time characteristic than the rest of my population, and then place these few people randomly around the building. But then we come to the problem of how this exotic point affects the outcome of the whole simulation. And when my population is uniform, I reach convergence fairly quickly on random distribution of people in my building. Because if I run five, maybe 10 simulations, it usually will converge to a value. But when you have these exotic points, basically few people among a hundred or a thousand of in your building, you would probably have to run a thousand simulations to, to find this effect and eventually figure out the bottleneck scenarios. So it seems like very costly procedure. So I prefer to hide behind the safety margins. I'm not sure if I'm doing it right. I guess that's uh, one way of doing it, but uh, we are still in, in a situation in which even if we want to model explicitly the, the wide range of possible disabilities and how can they affect the evacuation, it's very hard because we know relatively little. So often you see, for instance, in buildings, especially more complex buildings, that you have uh, dedicated solutions for people with disabilities. But as a general thought also for that, I think we have to move away from that concept. I know that mm. this is practically often implemented, but the ideal scenario would be to find a solution that equally works for everyone. And if you if you're using a solution that works for people with disabilities generally works also very well for uh, called a standard uh, or whatever we want to call it uh, adult population uh, whatever standard means because again the, the standard actually we're going to get to the point that we have to change what is the concept of standard population mm. because this is what it is about here the future building will have more and more uh, let's say variability so that's why I think it's a reasonable approach what you're doing Wojciech, nowadays but uh, if we look as research, we have to look at the future. Yeah. And that, that's something that we should change. At least we should try to characterize better the populations as it is now. And then the projection of the future is the next step. I think it's also now with the tools becoming available, like these immersive setups or just virtual reality, without exposing these people to, to true harm, allows you to, to really quantify things that you could never do in the past. Like you would not put, I mean, it's hard to put students into a smoky tunnel and think about trying to do experiments with disabled people on the same setup. It's, I think it would not be possible. And yet today you, you may have uh, chances to, to quantify this. I also, uh, I also think like to what extent we can capture this data from the drills or real fire accidents. Like the buildings today are armed with CCTV cameras. So technically, if uh, you have a shopping mall evacuated, if you have a cinema evacuated, you, you can pretty much figure out with, with machine learning what happened, where people did move, right? So uh, how do you feel these sources of, of data can, can play around in, in making what you just uh, said before? Yeah, well, they will definitely help, I will say. But yeah, there is all sorts of problems that are more related to privacy issues because, you okay. know, then we enter a territory into like to which extent are we even allowed <laughs> to use CCTV cameras or whatever other data. I know, for instance, Rina's worked a lot with GPS data, you know, or uh, even, you know, there are people that use the traces of your phone in a building. The, the big uh, issue here is not the technical feasibility because there is a lot of work already being done in this but it's are we even allowed to do this 
Okay. So for the good of science, I would argue that we should, but uh, sometimes uh, go to an ethical committee and explain that you want to film everyone in a building for one year until there something happens that it's interesting for you as a researcher, and you can check whoever is in that building all the time. I mean, it's hard to convince both the ethical committee and even the owners of the buildings very often uh, that we do it for the good of science. <laughs> if I can expand on that, yes. sometimes, paradoxically, I've been recording recording drills in uh, some buildings in which there were CCTV videos, but they told me it's easier if you put, I mean, from a regulation point of view of this institution, it was much easier to get the approval to put my own mini cameras and record the drill rather than using the, follow the process to get the video through all the process that they had in place to, to access the video through the CCTV mm. cameras. Sometimes it's incredibly complex, the process that you need to follow to get access to video that are normally recorded and I had the same issues here in my university to get access to the CCTV recording of drills I had to go through a really really heavy protocol and explanation mm -hmm. of why and how the data would have been used and uh, sometimes it, it became really really challenging to even to get access of recording of even tragedies of a real accident. So probably easier to get them from YouTube than from... Yeah, it's, sometimes it happens that you find paper that are based on social media videos. There is a bit of mismatch there, I have to say, on how much care and attention there is in research about data protection and what you see out there. I mean, it's like if you see a TV show and you see like they do a social experiment, many of those things will never get approved by an ethical committee, but it's a TV show, so they get away with it. So yeah. it's kind of, I mean, as a researcher, sometimes it feels really strange that there is a different social acceptance between what are you allowed to do as a researcher and in theory, as a researcher, you are the one that knows how to do these things according to ethical uh, standards and what the rest of the world can do. Because pretty for much entertainment. for entertainment or whatever other reason, you know, because, I mean, we could, we could open now a very long discussion about privacy and uh, how much we give away our data to, to the world without even knowing sometimes versus how much we are sometimes restrictive to give our data to researchers that will actually make a good use out of it. They will not try to sell us <laughs> That's in a way horrible because what you want the data for is to essentially make the building safer for exactly these people. And when you go into their privacy, you go for this particular part of privacy, which is uh, behavior choices, movement patterns, not uh, why Karen went to shop to buy this uh, particular product. No, you want to know what what was in her head to, to choose the road that she picked up. So you can design it uh, in a way that in a fire, she'll have a better chances to escape. Me as, as a fire engineer, we usually, like, people don't know how much time and engineering it takes to buy them one minute of a time. Like how much work I have to, put to extend my uh, available time in, in the car park for one minute. And then you see uh, a fire and uh, this one minute was when well spent for creating a, a new video for YouTube. And it's kind of painful, you know, but here I, I've uh, jumped into another aspect. Like you've mentioned, we have this data that comes from 80s, 90s, 70s, like uh, fire safety is a field built on tragedies. 
And in evacuation, we had this huge fire in Las Vegas. Then it was the World Trade Center. These were the events that triggered like a breakthrough or leap through uh, research projects. And uh, then there was no cell phones. People were working uh, in a completely different way. If you called your friend to meet him on Friday in the plaza at, at noon, he would be there without <laughs> sending seven text messages. And and if he was not, it was not a huge issue either. <laughs> so uh, you would just live on with your life. And, and today the, the society and the individual behavior is like uh, completely different, not to mention the shape of a human. I'm definitely not fitting the anthropogenic <laughs> average of a, of a male in my age uh, from the, from the seventies. I have a big, much bigger moment of inertia. And, but this, this, you know, we, we base our modeling on these assumptions. So. Can we leap forward? And you also said something very important, Enrico, that is it enough to leap forward to today? Or we have to leap forward to tomorrow because ultimately, if you design the building today, it will be used in 50 years. And who will be using the building then? Some Jetson people. <laughs> How do you think we can like make this leap in a reasonable way? Or can we even make it? Somehow, I, I, I think that in the future, we will have an easier way to communicate with people inside the building because our buildings are slowly, I should say, really slowly, getting smarter and smarter and one of the main issues that we have uh, and we used to have in the past in many tragedies is not because we had a lot of casualties of people getting harmed not because they were panicking but because they didn't have the right information at the right time okay. and my hope for the future is that uh, those building and all the technology that we have available will allow us to have uh, right information much quicker and help us to to make the right choice. And that's gonna. I feel like the the the, the building are somehow is gonna are gonna become safer because this channel of information is gonna get better and better. And if you know already where is the fire, and you have the possibility to communicate to the building occupants where they need to go and what they need to do in real time, they will make a big big change in in the future. And you were mentioning before, augmented reality is something that now. We are just conceptualizing about, we are doing some small experiment, but you, you can already imagine that from here to 10, 20 years, holograms will be in a part of our life that will be like a smartphone now. Mm. Now we are looking at a smartphone and thinking, how the hell we've managed to, to live without a smartphone? How, how, the, how people were capable to, to find a place without Google Maps or meet each other at the, at the right time, or even when they were traveling together with the two different cars, or they managed to not to get yeah, lost. This, yeah. For my generation, it's like, that was crazy. Instead, now, you find a way. And, and, and I think that augmented reality and holograms are going to make our life safer and easier if we use it in the right way, because we can uh, use hologram to, to guide people, to communicate with people in a more dynamic way. If you think now we have uh, uh, dynamics, uh, we don't have much dynamic system that lead you towards the, the best mm. exit. We have just static lights that are need, need to be there just to tick a box most of the time because the code tells you to do it. Say. And where we put most of the si signal, of course, on the top because you need to see them, but the smoke goes on the top so there is a lot of things that you do it for checking the box, but from a human behavior perspective and performance perspective, you know already that it's not going to work. But if you go into dynamic systems, um, 
they are dynamic in, let's say, transferring information, but the scenarios for this transfer are still static. So if you have a fire at the seventh floor, they will trigger to this area. If if not, they will trigger to other the, the area. And from my experience, the ones that I've met, they were like locally connected to sensors. So if there's a fire behind the door, it will show X. But it does not like uh, really think about what's the optimal way. And we also are arming our buildings with, with sensors, with uh, a lot of devices. And it, it's a theme uh, on the podcast. Whoever I speak with, they see this immense value of, of arming the building up. So can we use this, let's say, smartness of a building to maybe guide the evacuation process? And if we can, should we or can we um, include that in our modeling? Because if ultimately... like. I can imagine that arming a building with a smart system would make it safer. But should I, in my modeling, take it into account that the building is smart, is safer, and the evacuation time is quicker? Or should I go conservative? At this stage, we'll go conservative, of course. But if you plan for a conservative scenario, and then you manage to bring in a building technology that is going to make it much more efficient from a safety point of view, that means that it's going to be even better than what you design it. If I go conservative in my modeling, how do I explain to my client why they should put additional money on the sensors if they don't benefit? And Nico, you've mentioned smart buildings in the past. I see so. what you mean. Yeah, I understand the problem because then we go yeah. always to the bottom line as engineers. Is this and, and sorry, if you go conservative, you can just say, okay, there's 5,000 people in my building. The speed they can exit doors is, is one person per meter per second. So it's going to take this amount of seconds, end of the calculation. Why, why model anything else? There are two aspects here. One aspect is something that unfortunately in most cases safety is still seen as a box yeah. that we need to take compliance not safety exactly so in, in an ideal world safety would be for instance if you go to a hotel safety would be as much rated as comfort or other things that will make you uh, choose one over another but unfortunately the reality is that very often this is not the case so you need to meet the minimum bar then if you are exceeding that minimum let's say very little people care and and often the clients don't want to even pay for exceeding that minimum not in all the cases mm -hmm. but in, in most of the cases. Uh, what I will see as an ideal, uh, let's say, uh, an ideal setup to really exploit what we have nowadays would be something like that connects these sensors with a modeling system. So even smarter mm -hmm. in a way. So, And there are a few attempts of research groups that have tried to do that. I know that the, the group in Greenwich has started There's some work. So basically, you, you have a building that is rigged with sensors. This information is sent to a simulator. The simulator also uh, knows where the people currently are, knows where the threat is, and then run a set of what-if scenarios and analyze what is the best route to indicate to people to get the, the quickest and the safest mm -hmm. uh, evacuation. I mean, it's sounds like sci-fi nowadays, but we're actually not that far from getting there. I mean, there are a few things to solve concerning, let's say, uh, reliability of such systems and, uh, you know, things legislation. Have to, legislation, things have to hold during mm -hmm. a fire, everything, the communication. To directional communication, because today it's simple. If your fire sensor detects the fire and dies, it's okay, <laughs> because it did its job, yeah? But here, if your... Um, yeah. 
human counting uh, mechanism fails at some point. Fails, yeah. And then uh, you are in trouble because you don't know anymore yeah. which direction to, 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 to indicate people. You don't want to point yeah. it towards the threat and so on. It is not as much far in the mm -hmm. future the way I see it, but there is quite some work to be done yet. Not simply on the technical side, but on the redundancy setup that you have and the reliability of such type of system. Because that would be really ideal. So like to have really uh, smart build that mm -hmm. makes smart people, if you know what I mean. That's the way oh, forward, yeah. the way I see it. Because all these systems that we have now tested, like, uh, you know, you see dissuasive signage and uh, active signage and so on. This, you know, there is research that tells you even how to design to provide the correct information uh, to people. So, again, we have some ground research already in there, but what is missing is like, okay, we need really some very large company with a lot of money to put in into actually uh, making something reliable and resilient. I can say that, for instance, here in the West Island mm -hmm. of New Zealand, it's called Australia. <laughs> some Australia <laughs> might get hurt with this joke. We have even a company that is producing those of the dissuasive sign. But the problem is that you can develop all the manufacturing, all the system that you want, but is from a legislation point of view, we need to address who is going to be accountable for responsibilities if those system fails. So there is, uh, it's not just a matter of uh, developing the technology, but also rethink about the way we share responsibility in terms of uh, who is accountable for what do after a disaster. Developing the technology and creating the algorithms is the easy part. Making a world use them is, is the hard part. We've landed the hard way in smoke control. If you come up today with the new smoke control solution that is much better than the previous ones, it does not matter as long as the previous ones are compliant and there is no economic incentive in using the new system, it will not be adopted. While any smallest economic incentive like this solution makes it cheaper, then immediately a landslide starts where people put money investing in these technologies, improving them. Eventually, you get with very optimized solution beyond the point where, where you cannot optimize anymore. And this solution gets, that gets implemented in the buildings. And this is why I've asked you, you know, that uh, how can we account for having these advanced solutions? Because if I don't show incentive to my stakeholders... They will, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool, but I'm, I, I have a yacht to buy. And <laughs> if I can add something, Wojciech, one other thing that you can do is that we should not have this kind of smart sensor yep. just for safety. So if we use systems for multi-purpose, so I, I make an example, like a, a couple of years ago, I was involved in a research project with mm. the CERN in Switzerland. And uh, these guys, they have all sorts of technology, yep. and as you can imagine, and for instance, they use robots for maintenance of their tunnels. So they have a railing system with robots basically already in there. So I said, okay, you have this there, so why we don't use it also for safety purposes? So why we don't rig this with some sort of signage that move around, <laughs> chase the people and indicate the way? And I mean, it's, again, it sounds like sci-fi, but they actually bought this idea and we even tested in VR to try to see how it works and it actually does work. So because the buildings are getting smarter and smarter, so mm -hmm. they have many things in there already. So if you are using something that is already in there or you're proposing a system that can be exploited not just for safety, but also for other purposes, I think that's the winning argument for a client saying, okay, look, you are putting this in, but you're not going to use it only for safety. You're going to use it maybe 
also to facilitate whatever other, let's say, purpose that you have in, in the building. That that should be uh, a good extra yeah. selling argument. Sinian, in his episode, uh, he was facing the same uh, problems as, as we now in this talk, because he mentioned about HVAC sensors that are used in the building, but not used for safety, for example. They're used to control the climate in the building. So you have to measure temperature, humidity, and, and some other parameters of there, which could be useful for, for fire when it's developing in a building. And, and I think he, he, he mentioned something very smart, high-value, high-risk buildings, such as tunnels, big museums, could be a great playground for these approaches. In modern tunnels, you already have very powerful CCTV systems with accident detection, so they know if a car stopped, they know if a person exited the vehicle, you have this two-way communication, at least in the tunnels in Poland, you would have a, some sort of voice alarm system and a microphone to, to communicate with the people inside the tunnel. So so these buildings could be like a testing ground to, to figure out these uh, solutions. And if they work, then maybe we can show how they help in the buildings. And uh, if we do that, maybe we can scale up to, let's say, buildings in general. That's a good route ahead. And from, from this discussion, I'm kind of surprised it did not come up yet uh, that we could do a little bit better job connecting like CFD and evacuation modeling, you know, the viability of asset asset concept or or this is another kind of shoestroming you don't want to open. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I find this uh, fascinating because it's like the dream of evacuation modelers since evacuation modeling was born. <laughs> to connect both and get and, rid of acid arsen. And two-way, so that the actions of people affect the fire. That's the, the, the real missing part at the okay. moment. Okay. Go on, that, that's Let's good. open this can. You go I, mean, I, I can start reading. Well, welcome to part two of the episode. <laughs> at the moment, most of the models that do some sort of coupling, they take the fire... Uh, yeah. outputs and they put in an evacuation model and they try to affect the behavior with all sorts of limitations that we are aware of. Mm. For instance, well, I mean, the one that is the biggest and more evident to, to me is the CFD calculates visibility and yeah. how this is then. I mean, Wojciech, I don't have to explain this to you, yes. I guess. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for me that I'm on the other end with the R set, I mean, this is, mm. sounds like it should be priority one for any yeah. CFD model to improve the visibility sub-models uh, in CFD mm. because that's what really matters for evacuation. Mm. Everything else is kind of, yeah, kicks in afterwards. The, the, the visibility criteria is the one that screw up everything generally. You, you cannot be triple dead. <laughs> I mean, if you die because exactly. you lost path, it's, you're down. Not, that doesn't matter if the temperature killed you twice. And <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, the, the, the ideal thing would be actually to have a real integrated tool in which the actions of people down the line mm. have a direct impact also on the fire calculations. Because you know better than me that if you open a door, close a door, or do anything in the building that can have an impact on the configuration of the building layout, that's like you change boundary conditions. It's another scenario. This is fantastic that you've mentioned because it, it blows my mind how we are not doing that and even in practice, we, we are doing the complete opposite. I've done CFD simulations because I was forced to, unwillingly, to show that uh, when you close the door to a compartment, your corridor is free of smoke. I'm like, I seriously, I don't need to do CFD simulation to tell you that if you close the door, it's going to be okay. Oh, yeah, but we need this scenario. The fire expert wants, but 
why? Why would I simulate a fire in a compartment where I close the door before the fire starts? But they, they wanted it. And and here, what you mentioned, if you follow a person and you know they left, there's a, let's say, 50% chance they left the door open or closed yeah. in, in the room. That's two completely different CFD simulations uh, exactly, of, that, exactly. of that scenario. So um, you, you're right, two-way integration is something less... And, and also with some sort of, uh, let's say, probabilistic approach, because you will not know, it's not only about if they leave a door open, but, uh, and it's also, mm-hmm. what is the problem? it's also when and uh, yeah. what app. So it's like, in this case, you could go directly for a probabilistic approach in which you could set up uh, a series of possible uh, scenarios and see the the, the consequences uh, on, on the global uh, probability of having something to happen and what is the impact. Yeah. Ruggiero, you did something like that with this evacuation of a musical festival, a chemical accident near it. Yeah, this wonderful idea. No, it was Enrico idea. The real story, <laughs> sad and real stories that I was writing my thesis, my PhD thesis, and I, I was g- getting mad, so Enrico told me, I'll give you something to work. <laughs> but it's still, the, the problem was still the same that affect mm. the far simulation. And yeah. I'm not entirely sure that this is right, because if you think like a crowd moving, a crowd is moving here, is creating a perturbation mm. in, the, in the field uh, that, where you're simulating. Because when you, uh, the simulation, uh, for instance, that we use in that case were done in CFD, with the best that we could do, considering the computational power that we had, mm-hmm. and it was done by the team in Ghent. Mm-hmm. And of course, it wasn't considering the perturbation of movement of people in, in the space. But you were calculating doses and stuff. Yeah, the, the things that we managed to do is to, to get the, the simulation done in CFT. Enrico did the simulation about the evacuation with one of his students, and my work was just try to connect and calculate what was the dose of uh, inhalated uh, gases mm. by, by those people. But the, the coupling, once again, was one directional. It wasn't directional. Yeah, as I, I mean, that was also an outdoor scenario, so it's a bit less critical, I, I, I will say. But the, I mean, in principle, I still see a clear gap there. I've seen only very limited attempts to do them and mostly in a very premature research stage so you know okay i've seen a phd i think there was somebody doing a phd on this topic in greenwich at some point but you know then i didn't see anything else so it it's really hard also sometimes to convince uh, let's mm-hmm. say research funder then what we're doing at the moment is still very limited because you say, okay, but we have buildings until now they mm-hmm. stand there is a clear gap there on t- because this is something also on which we have uh, limited knowledge from the human behavior perspective. You know, we have a general understanding of what action people could do, like things as what you mentioned, like leaving a door open or not leaving a door open and what is the probability and so on. Uh, but, you know, before putting this into a model, we will have to do a much more systematic investigation of what could happen. Okay, let, let's, move, let's move back a bit one step. Let's take this uh, two-dimensional coupling. Let's, let's go back to one-dimensional coupling so only the effects of the fire are simulated on the evacuees. But let's go back to outdoor and, and let's talk wildfire evacuation, for example, where mm-hmm. you evacuate not, not a building but mm-hmm. uh, an area filled with people and here you come 
uh, to similar choices, actually, that you would have evacuating building because it's, again, a topic of the speed at which you can travel, the route mm-hmm. choice model, and pre-evacuation mm-hmm. time. It's just the, all the three elements are completely different. So Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the main added layer there is that we don't evacuate only on foot. That's the thing. Yeah. So we have the, the traffic modeling part, which is a completely different world. Mm-hmm. I have to say it's much bigger than the pedestrian modeling world. It's much more investigated. There is much more... Mm. Uh, critical mass of research that have looked into this, mostly for general use, not necessarily evacuation, but there has been also a lot of research. I know, Rino, you have been reviewing on research on hurricanes and things like this, mm. but the, the main added complexity there is that you don't have any more two layers, so the, the, the fire threat and the pedestrian decision movement. But you have the traffic as well, so you have an, an additional layer, and many people even argued that we should even neglect the pedestrian layer and just put much more effort on the... There is a lot of controversy here because there are some, especially in the traffic modeling, they argue that it's pretty much equivalent if you just put the pre-evacuation response curve to a traffic model uh, without uh, modeling like the, the pedestrian actions. So the time for for person to, to enter a car and, and start evacuating properly. Exactly. So the, by basically ignoring what happens in the decision-making stage, but just like aggregating this in a macroscopic way. I, I'm not a big fan of that approach, I have to be honest, because mm. I still feel that there is a value. Even It's not necessarily something you have to do with the microscopic model, you know, to like agent-based. It gets, you know, for large-scale computation, very heavy, I understand understand that. Mm-hmm. But even if you do it in a macroscopic way, I think there is a value in trying to break down the pieces of the different phases and try to understand what could have an impact rather than just putting everything together into a curve. And, and it's a bit like the problem that we face in pedestrian modeling in a different scale. So in pedestrian modeling now, we use distributions because we don't really understand very well yet what actions could happen. I mean, we have some conceptual model or theories that explain like how people take decisions, but we, we don't really know in detail. And, and I mean, on the bigger scale, probably the traffic models often, they don't really want to dig into what happens in the scale of the building. They just care when mm. <laughs> you enter a car. And, and I think that's not the right approach. But maybe, Reno, I remember we talked about this a few times, right? I don't know, maybe you have a different view. You, you are very close to the traffic modeling people, probably even more than me. No, I think in this case, the main issues that we have is that we try to use the, those distribution for wildfire that I think that when we use this approach for building, we don't get much in trouble because it's a really contained space. But when we start thinking like you can use the distribution that has been observed in a completely different scenario to design a, and or check the safety of another completely different area, it's quite critical. And I think that we are still in the stage in the wildfire field in which we, we know pretty much also here, what are the factors that affect the decision of uh, households, but we don't have yet enough modeling skills and data to do really accurate prediction of what will happen in a different community. And that's the first things that I need to bring up. Regarding the, if we need to consider pedestrian or just traffic, it, also in this case, it really depends on the scenario that we are focusing. Because mm-hmm. we know that in some cases, you can see even, just Google it, just go on YouTube, you can see that some cases, some component of evacuation is driven by foot. It depends what, what are the safety scheme in place. And sometimes... Yeah. 
you need to use vehicle. It depends on the area that you're considering. It depends on the scenario that you are facing up. I mean, it depends on the, the scale of details that you want to have in your simulation. I, I think it's also connected to the preparedness because if your preparedness level is high and you're like understanding that such an event as mass evacuation must happen before the fire, uh, then you can plan uh, better for like use of vehicles. But if you see footage from, I don't know, Greece uh, or, or Turkey, the recent wildfires, where people are in a way surprised by the fire when having the, their whole daytime at the sea. And they, they are basically forced. There is no more time for vehicle evacuation towards the mainland. The only way you can go is towards the sea and be picked up by boats. So this is a completely different setting in which this vehicle component, or at least the road vehicle component, is cut off. And all you have is, is pedestrian movement. But this is a response, not preparedness planning. And we, we might also acknowledge that there are some communities that are much more prepared to wildfire because they've been experiencing them quite a lot, if you think a lot of Australians and uh, Americans. Instead, there are new countries that didn't even know what was like, what a wildfire would look like, that are starting mm. experiencing them because yes. climate changes is redrawing the maps of the area that are under risk. Enrico might tell you that after the first serious wildfire occurring in Sweden, started receiving so many calls to, to get in. Yeah, it's like, I, I would say that the amount of wildfire research in Sweden has been boosting in the last couple of years. I mean, a couple of years ago, it was really me and a couple of brave folks that were looking into the topic here in Sweden. But now it became really a hot topic because after the summer 2018, which was incredibly hit by a series of wildfires here in Sweden. Everything changed in the perspective of people. You know, especially when we look at the population that traditionally, they have a lot of uh, wild and urban interface. So here in Sweden, there is a tradition of liking yeah. to live close to the nature and mm. being really in areas... Near the forest, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So you're really potentially very much exposed here. So it became really a hot topic. But I, I just also want to bring up going back one second to the topic of yep. what we should model on the, on the, in the wildfires. I mean, what we really need, for instance, if we really want to go down the path of a, of a simplified macroscopic approach that use just a traffic model and, and some sort of distribution for everything that happens before, we need to characterize what we have in, in an area. We have not done this. So how does the percentage of households versus hotels mm -hmm. affect a pre-evacuation response curve in wildfire? We don't have a clue. Because, you know, it's a completely different story if you are in your property that you want to defend, you are more, much more attached compared to if you are in a hotel that, okay, there is a fire, I can't wait to leave here, I don't care that I leave everything behind. Mm. So we don't have that research yet there. The only thing that I've seen now that has been done some research in Australia on this is on defining archetypes of people. So what what different people in different conditions will do. There is some work done in Australia on this I've seen recently, but still we, we cannot really quantify with the macroscopic model. We don't have the tools nowadays to quantify mm. with the macroscopic model. What is the let's say, the impact that a certain number of households, or imagine if you have a hospital. I mean, it's yeah. a completely different story. Yeah. Either you go down the route of if, doing... Even the, school, and if you're in a school season or, or not in a school season, exactly, right? Exactly, 
Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I think that for the knowledge that we have now, we have to go down the path of combining pedestrian and traffic modeling. But, you know, I, I heard uh, <laughs> different opinions on this. Uh, yeah, I've but touched this subject. I brought it up because the, the episode I wanted about the future of evacuation modeling. And as far as buildings are uh, sexy, interesting, you know, and there's a lot to be done in the buildings here, it's not a, a pothole to, to jump over. It's a whole canyon of problems to, to solve, to, to have an integrated approach of fire and evacuation modeling outside of a building in this urban interface. We're almost approaching like a global scale model, because if you just add weather to that, you may have like a continuous prediction system of what to do On over a country. Yeah. I can even give you some heads up that we are, uh, as Enrico was saying, we are trying to use GPS data and try to mm. observe big chunk of population, track them, their behavior. And there is a lot of work I'm doing led by University of Florida by Dr. Shilei Zhao. And with her, we are trying to understand when people decide to move and depending on the area where they are, if they are at their okay. home, try to understand how they move in, the, in this scenario, if they go directly away from the scenario, if they need to stop in intermediate place. And those big data can help us to handle some of those questions, mm -hmm. but it's still challenging because you get, you might think, ah, big data is the solution for everything. You, mm -hmm. you get... Some benefits of big sample size, but you get the uncertainty that you don't ask people what they are doing while you're observing yeah. there. So I think it's one of the places where if I was a funding agency, I would put much more research funding. If I would pick now between building and wildfire, I would probably pick more about wildfire, because, especially because we are having this new wildfire. Even New Zealand, if you see the statistics of the number of wildfire that we are having here and the number of people that are forced to evacuate every year is getting pretty different compared to what used to be 30, 40 years ago. Okay, for the last thing, because uh, I've previously mentioned that the pre-distribution times and, and distribution curves and stuff like that are very like European-centric and in a way also modeling is very like connected to, to rich countries, buildings and stuff. And there's like 1 billion people living in informal settlements. Do you think the modeling can help us tackle the issues of managing safety in this type of communities? And, well, obviously, yes, but, but to what extent? And the, the second part of the question, is the current state of modeling sufficient to model uh, such can complex... Can I get that? Yeah, go on. Go ahead. No, I can tell you the story. And Masood, my friend, is a prof in Karachi. Uh, Nerd University will be happy to hear that at some point. It's like now now we are trying to, to write a paper on an evacuation drill that we run in, uh, in Karachi, in Pakistan. And when we were planning the drill, I told him, okay, we set up the fire alarm and then we, we see what happened. And he looked at me and said, you know, you realize that we don't even have a fire alarm in this library. Okay. That's uh -huh. the issues. Yeah. So we have some countries in which, the, unfortunately, the safety issues are not the priority yet. Because in this country, for instance, they are still coping to make sure that the building won't collapse like a pancake in some case and kill most of the people. So they need to invest much more money on focusing on other 
safety yeah, issues. Yeah, but there. that's why I think it's maybe not an obligation, but it's something that we 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 should like try and do for them because they they have a bigger problems on their heads to to worry about the emergency response, even though it's serious. Probably the access to sanitary uh, facilities or or the structural integrity of the of the whole thing is is more urgent for them so i would be surprised to to see a, a local researchers developing solutions for these problems where they have something bigger on their mind at the same I'm time i personally try to help with That's this good. kind of col- collaboration i mean from my egoistic point of view you can say no and i just work with the specific university but no, i find it, it's it's even interesting because you might discover running drills in this, for me, it's a, new, a completely different scenario to discover mm. something that we never observe in, uh, let's call them Western country. And for me, from a scientific point of view, it's exciting to to discover because if you even think, I've been in Karachi, I've been in Pakistan, and for me, it was like a cultural experience that it blown my mind because you can see, if you think that Italian traffic is crazy, Go to Pakistan or India. <laughs> and for me, I was just with my smartphone recording the traffic because for me it was something unbelievable. But saying that, even the dressing code that they use there is completely different from our uh, blue jeans in which you have uh, a different way to, to walk and perform in case which of... Which uh, kind of changes the velocity, speeds and stuff like and, that, and right? So far, there is only one paper that was published about Saudi Arabia dressing code impact on evacuation. So there is a lot of exciting research that can be done mm. and to discover... Enrico, what about modeling? Because uh, when you design a building, you have the layout. <laughs> so that's pretty much the building that's going to be built. When in informal, it's more like, let's say, or, organically uh, built uh, environment, right? Yeah, but I, as I said, this is not technically impossible to represent. I've actually seen uh, there is some pilot work that has been mm. doing now on trying to represent uh, informal settlements. Basically, some people I saw use some sort of machine learning algorithm by taking satellite photos and making it into some sort of a layout. I, I, it's still work in progress. There is not too much, let's say, yet in terms of research, but there is a few groups around the world that are starting mm. addressing the problem. I know, I mean, the general problem of informal settlements, we, we have seen that now even in South Africa have started looking into this research and uh, they have a research group there doing fire science. Alan Bush, yes, fantastic group. Exactly. With Edinburgh, they've been working. I know there are some companies that popped up that looked exactly and at this. Kindling by Daniel Antonellis, that's fantastic effort. Exactly. So I think these are all valuable efforts. But again, in the big picture, we, we as researchers, we, we, we sometimes hit a wall when we try to get funding for those kind of activities mm. because... I mean, there are some funding agencies that are more sensitive to this type of humanitarian work, but there are some very, let's say, engineering-minded, uh, Western world-minded, uh, too Western world-minded focused, capitalist-focused, that it's very hard to convince them, give me funding to study what's happening in Bangladesh or in Pakistan. We're actually trying to get a grant for wind cost damage on informal settlements like three or four years ago, maybe even five years ago, with, with South African uh, people. And we didn't get the funding. The comment was like, we're, we're not sponsoring that. It, yeah. it was like, like, we're not interested. And then two years ago, something has shifted because the IRIS project was awarded to Edinburgh. 
where they focus ultimately on the fire safety of this. So it's also maybe a shift on politics that uh, that changes. So you have to be at the right uh, place at the right time to get this funding, which is in a way ridiculous. And I mean, going back also to the topic of wildfires, I think this is totally applicable also there because the level of preparedness and the mm-hmm. level of, let's say, awareness even of the problem that there is changes, varies widely depending on where you are. Yeah. And often we have the Western world in mind, but you know, wildfires are not a problem only on the Western world. Yeah. So, and, and that's why I've always been pushed uh, for uh, trying to develop tools that are free and open. You probably know that together with uh, with a group of people, we, have, we mm. are trying to make an effort to develop a tool called Winity that it's uh, free mm. and open yeah. for everyone. It's with uh, Imperial College, with Guillermo Moraine and a FPA. couple of other folks, NRC and FPA. So we, we are trying to trying to put something out that could be yeah. used by anyone so that even if you don't have huge resources, you still have something to use. Because otherwise, you know, the risk is that if you put, if you develop something that is a commercial tool, I mean, who is going to use those tools? Who's going to use who can afford them? And that's a bit like, I understand it, that if you are a company, you have to pay your bills and so Mm. on. But us as universities, we probably should have a slightly different mission. And now as companies start to grow around this topic and get that they maybe are more successful, you know, in obtaining funds, they, they can go with a slightly different agenda than you can go. With your projects, you're usually time limited, time constrained. The deadline is next Thursday and either yeah. you get a partner or not. So that's uh, that's kind of uh, limiting here. Hey, guys, thank you uh, so much. I'm really thankful for for this conversation. It's It's been very interesting and we've touched so many aspects of modeling and I have like ideas for seven more episodes now. <laughs> so thanks for, thanks a lot for, for coming here. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot, Wojciech. It was really nice to, to talk to you. And as I said, uh, it's the beginning of many conversations on this topic. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that my fiancé will be happy for a new podcast because whenever we have this I'm the one washing the dishes <laughs> the, the, the sound restrictions of the of the podcast recording made it's a, a podcast <laughs> yeah podcast. now it's gonna be my podcast we can arrange that even daily if you want well yeah probably next time let's do it morning time for we me are morning time even, what do you mean <laughs> for uh, for the poor guys on the other side of the world and okay the challenges of of, of, a, of a global village well thank thanks, you for guys. having me see you around thanks Wojciech thank you And that's it. That was another action-packed podcast episode full of really intriguing thoughts and very vibrant discussion on the state of evacuation modeling. I I hope you enjoyed that and you've picked some things that are useful for your everyday practice. For myself, some concepts were really interesting to hear them directly from the experts in the field like the need to replace the fundamental diagrams with something even more fundamental. So in a way that you're supplying the data on what your population is in terms of maybe gender, age, background. And then the model should figure out what to do with that data to to assess the proper pre-evacuation distribution, proper speed versus density equations and stuff like that. That's that's really intriguing because now we are supplying that the data directly using one or two relations that are written in the SFP handbook. And maybe that's not the best way, probably the easiest, but maybe not the, the best one to, to use in, in modeling. 
And the second really interesting thing was when Enrico mentioned two-way coupling between CFD and evacuation modeling. I must say I've never thought about it in, in this way that we should probably include in our CFD analysis the effects people have on the on the state of the building at the moment in terms of opening doors, windows, moving around, playing with systems. If you think about the most simple pressurization system, the state of its operation will always be dependent on the state of the doors and the state of the doors will be directly connected to if someone is using them at the moment or not. And that's a really, really powerful thought because when we do analyze the safety of our buildings, we often run this simplistic calculations where actually the calculations are super advanced, but the scenarios are the most simple we can get. We, we simplify everything. We assume the doors are closed, that no one opens or fills with them. We assume everything works like it should, while in reality, that might not be the case. And you might end up with a completely different scenario, completely different operation of your building, and in consequence, completely different operation of your systems. So if we could include the human behavior in this equation in CFD modeling, that actually would be phenomenal. And that could open a whole new world of analysis in which you could truly uh, test if the systems are fail-safe. If there is a single point of, point of failure for a system that makes it useless. Yeah, I think that, that's like really powerful thought. It's, it's really resonating with me. And because we are preparing a huge round of full-scale corridor smoke control system experiments that I'm going to tell you more in the near future, it's something we need to include in our experiments. And it's going to be fantastic. So I, I'm really thankful for Enrico to poaching that idea to me. A lot of credit goes to him, if not all the credit. So yeah, that's that's something that that's already like blowing up in my mind and and it will change the way how we approach these modeling and experiments. And maybe this is something that, that started a new better future for, for this field of fire science. I hope it is. Probably I'm exaggerating, but yeah, I would really like it to be. So tell me what you took out of this episode. Tell me what you've learned about evacuation modeling and the future of it. Maybe you see a different path for the evacuation modeling in the future. Maybe you have some ideas how to make evacuation modeling better. Please share them with me and with Enrico and with Ruggiero. Uh, we will very, very appreciate that and we'll try to respond to you. And uh, maybe just like Enrico did, uh, telling me that uh, simple idea, maybe you, you will also change uh, someone's whole research plan for the better. And uh, yeah, as a final announcement... Um, I would like to say that I was very pleased with how this episode went and no Italians were harmed by sending them pineapple pizza. They are very safe. Their pizzas are like they're supposed to be without the pineapple on it. And I hope they're very happy. So yeah, thank you to my Italian guests. This was a fantastic chat with you. I, I had a great fun. I've learned a lot and the ideas are booming in my head. So what else to what else to expect from a, from a great interview? Thank you so much. And to the listeners, thank you very much for being here. I appreciate you tuning into the Fire Science Show every week. I appreciate you sharing that on your socials with friends, with colleagues in your offices. I really hope you keep doing that. I really hope that 
podcast keeps growing because uh, I'm getting more and more ideas for new episodes, for for new things I can do for you to serve the audience better. And yeah, let's let's create together a little better fire safe world. So thanks for listening. And as usually, see you next Wednesday. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.